Thank you so much for that, praise team and instrumentalists. This morning, if you have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, where we will continue, as Brother Dusty shared earlier, in our, our marriage series, our series about marriage matters, our series where hopefully what we are uh, understand that we're doing is that we're really trying to simply look through the scriptures to understand what God tells us about marriage, what marriage should look like, what marriage done God's way looks like. Uh, you can go a lot of places, you can find a lot of sources, you can hear a lot of different things about what people think marriage should be or, or their opinion about it. We can find those everywhere. Every newspaper you can find, every magazine, every person you talk to has an opinion about who you should be as a husband, about who you should be as a wife, about what a family unit should look like. We can find those opinions everywhere. I pray that you haven't come this morning to hear those opinions, though, because what we will look at this morning is not an opinion, but it's the truth. It's the facts about marriage. It's what God says, and what God says is the truth, and it is the, the thing that we need to hear most. So I pray that even if what you hear this morning may not line up with exactly what you've thought about marriage, if what you hear the next few weeks doesn't line up with what you have thought or what I've thought about marriage, that we would be willing to say, you know what, for this whole time I've been wrong, and now I understand that this is right. In Genesis chapter 2, I want to give you a little bit of the background where we're picking up this morning. I know that uh, you think, well, Brother Zach, there's not a whole lot of background before Genesis chapter 2, right? We know what happened. But all of these things have been made. We've seen the creation story. And today we're picking up and we're on the sixth day. And so all of the animals have been made and Adam has been made. And this is on the sixth day, sometime on the day before it ends, before God rests on the seventh day. And the only thing that hasn't been made yet is Eve, is the woman. And so everything else that's going to be made has already been made at this point. And God after making Adam, declares something very specific about Adam. There's something that God says very clearly, declares to us about Adam, that leads to the creation of Eve, and that's where I want us to begin this morning. If you would, look in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin by reading verse 18 together. Genesis 2, 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, whenever we look at this text right here, I want to stop there for a moment because one thing that I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about, because what one way that we could read this, because we usually read from our own experience or we interpret things from our own experience, and the way that this would happen for me, I've done this sort of thing before. Some of you know that I recently made a table for our, our dining room. Amanda wanted a big, long farmhouse table, and so I said, I think I could do that. Let me undertake that project. I've never built anything before, but that's something I think I could do. And so I start making the table, and I would do something, and then I would step back and say, I believe I should have done that differently, but it's too late now. And I would do something else, and I would say, man, if I would have done it this way, I think it would have been a lot easier. And that seems like what we see here. It seems like God makes all the animals, and then God makes Adam, and God kind of steps back and says, hmm. I've made this man by himself, but you know what? I see now that it's not good that man should be alone. But that's not what's taking place here. God doesn't 
uh, do things by trial and error. God doesn't have to observe things and then change. Whenever we read the scriptures, it tells us that God is infinitely wise, that God knows all things, that he declares the end from the beginning, that he knows all things. So what God is saying here is not, I have seen this. No, what God is doing is declaring so that we will know this. God wants us to understand this, so he says it out loud. But whenever he says, it's not good that man should be alone, this is not an observation, it's a declaration. And I want you to go ahead and put that idea in your pocket, because all the things that we're going to be talking about with marriage today, we're not talking about things that God has observed, we're talking about things that God has declared, what he has said. And what we accept as the truth. So he see, he's, this is made clear to all of us that man should not be alone. So now let's look and see how God goes about making that right for the man. In verse 19 it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. So here we see kind of the end, except for the seventh day resting, the end of the creation story, the end of the making of things. And so God declares that it's not good for man to be alone. And so then Adam goes about, he's seen all of the animals. All of the animals have come and he's named all of them and given them the very specific names. But it's been very clear now. God already knew this, but now it's also clear to Adam that out of all of these animals, out of all the animals that have been made, that none of them are a suitable helper, a companion, a helpmate that would be fit for him. None of them. And so what happens is God then makes his sleep fall upon Adam, and what he does that's really important for our intent and purpose this morning is God then makes a suitable companion. God makes a suitable, a fit, a perfect helper for Adam. And who is it? What is it that he makes? He makes a woman. He makes Eve. That's her name as we know her. But he makes a woman. And one thing that I want to point out right here that we see in this text is that in the garden, before sin had ever entered the world, when there was nothing wrong, when all things were good, when God is declaring what is good, and he's making a, a companion for man, and he's making a relationship between two people, and he's trying to make it, or he is making it the way that it should be, the way that it is most correct and that it is best. How is that taking place? It's one man and it's one woman. This is God's picture for marriage. We see that here. Not more than two. There's one man and one woman. That makes two, right? There's not three. There's not four. It's not two men. It's not two women. There are a lot of things. It's not between a man and between an animal. None of them were suitable for him. The thing that God says is suitable is one man and one woman. And he makes that very clear. Now, let me make the distinction. Am I saying that people cannot be polygamous? 
that there could not be three or four in the relationship. I'm not necessarily telling you this morning that that can't happen. Am I telling you this morning that, that people could not be engaged in homosexual marriage? It's a very big question because it's legal in our country nowadays. I'm not telling you that that cannot take place. Am I saying that humans cannot marry animals if they wanted to? Well, they can't in America because that's not legal here. But in some places it may be. And in places where it's legal, people may can do that because people can make their own decisions. What I'm telling you this morning, and please listen to this. What I'm telling you this morning is that if you want to be and the type of marriage relationship that God designed you to be in. If you want to be in a biblically-based marriage, if you want to be in a marriage that is pleasing to God, then this is the way that it has to be. Those others are options, and people can make those choices as they want to. It's up to them and the law of the land and how it wants to be done. But if you want your marriage to be what I refer to as holy matrimony, marriage done God's way, then this is the way that it has to be one man and one woman. And we'll see in just a moment, it's the one man and it's the one woman committed to one another for all of life. That's the picture that God lays out for marriage. If you want it to be done God's way, then that's the way that it has to be done. Point one this morning, God as the infinitely wise creator is the one that declares what is right in marriage. I'll say it again because it's kind of wordy, but God... Because he's the infinitely wise creator, because he knows and sees and understands all things, he's the one that gets to declare what's right in marriage, at least for Christians. Whenever it comes to Congress, they can make the decisions that they want. Whenever it comes to other countries, they can make the decisions that they want. But when it comes to Christians, who gets to choose? It's not me, and it's not you, and it's not some lawmaking body somewhere, but it's God and God alone that gets to declare what is right in marriage. And of course, we do see in verse 23, when Adam sees this, he agrees that God has made the perfect helper. It says, then the man said, this is last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's seen all of the other creation. He's seen all of the other animals. But when he sees the woman, it's clear immediately to him that this is the suitable companion, that this is the helper that's perfect for him. But I want to make sure that we understand the far-reaching implications of this first point. Because whenever I tell you that God is the one that gets to choose what's right in marriage, some of you really don't like the idea of polygamy. So you say, that's right, brother. God gets to declare that, and that's right. And some of us don't like homosexual marriage. You say, so that's right, brother. Go ahead, Brother Zach, preach it. People need to hear this. Amen. But whenever we declare that God is the one that gets to choose what's right in marriage, it's not just those two points, it's all the points. It's what the role of the husband is in the marriage. What we looked at last week, living sacrificially, giving up things for your wife whether you feel like she deserves it or not. It's trying to, as a husband, make your wife more Christ-like and being worried about her spiritual growth. For wives, it's what God tells you. It's submitting to your husband. 
loving your husband, respecting your husband. Whenever we see these things, it's what God says is right about divorce. It's what God says is right about a suitable mate. It's what God says is right about how and when we decide to move in with the person that we're going to marry, about how and when we're going to be physically intimate with the person that we're going to marry. It's about what God says about how we interact with people of the opposite sex that are outside of our marriage. Every one of those falls under this same umbrella. And if you say, that's right, people should not be polygamous, then you should also say, that's right, I should love my wife like Christ loved the church. That's what this point means. Not that God gets to make the points that I agree with, but God gets to make all the points. And I'm sorry because Amanda used to tell me sometimes, Zach, you sounded like an angry preacher this morning, and I'm not an angry preacher, but if there is one thing that I ever get to preach about that really gets me excited, it's this idea that God's the one that's in charge, that God's the one that's always right, whether we initially see it or not, God is the one that's always telling the right thing. So whenever all of those things come up, don't say, what do I think about it? Don't say, what did mom and dad tell me about it? Say, what does God's word say about it? And don't just stop at marriage either, but go to the rest of your life. Go to every bit of your life. Go to whenever you want to know how you should worship or how you should treat strangers or how you should run your business or how you should deal with mean people or how you should look at authoritative figures or how you should talk or what you should put on social media or what sort of conversations you should have with people at work. When you think about all these things, don't say, what do I think? Don't say, what did mom and daddy say? What does God's word say? And do whatever it says. Because he's the infinitely wise Creator, and he's always right, so we always follow him. And today we're seeing that in marriage as well. Look with me in verse 24, because after God we see the initial making of this union, the one man and the one woman, Adam and Eve. Then he continues to teach about marriage, and we see some more points that are very, very important for us this morning as well. Verse 24 says, Therefore... With all of the things that we've just seen in mind, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So again, we see something here that's God declaring something. He's not observing this. How could he observe this? I was talking to some brothers about this text the other day, and the question came up. Well, how's he talking about an Adam and Eve because it says they'll leave their father and their mother? And Adam and Eve didn't have a father and a mother. I said, that's a very good point. You know why? Because God isn't telling us what he saw. God is declaring to us what is right. And he knew that we would have fathers and we would have mothers. And so he declares this to us. And there are some very specific words in this text that are very, very important for us. A couple of words, I think if you understand these words, that they're going to help us. And one is that the phrase or word, hold fast, or some of your translations say cleave to his wife. And I think mo a lot of times we've heard about that. And we understand that, this idea that we need to be really, really committed to our spouse. But there's one that comes before that, that sometimes we overlook. And y'all know that I have... Uh, some three little boys and I have a little girl and so sometimes whenever we as parents hear this first part we don't want to agree with it as much but again God tells us and it's the word leave 
says, therefore, a man or a woman in this context, anybody that's going to be in marriage shall leave their father and mother and hold fast to their wife or hold fast to their spouse. And that word leave is a very specific and it's a very strong word. If you look up some ways that it's translated, it's sometimes translated as abandon or desert or reject. And now, I'm not telling you this morning that whenever you get married that you should completely abandon and desert and reject your parents. But what I am telling you, what we do need to see in this, is that we are in some way supposed to cut some ties with our old family so that we can be more connected to our new family, which initially is just us and our spouse. Now again, this is the one that sometimes as parents we don't like this idea as much, but what we're seeing here is that our priority list changes on our, on our earthly scale from God and our family being our mother and father and our siblings to being God and our new family, which is you and your spouse, and then falling down a notch on the list of priorities. My old family, my mother, my father, my siblings. Whenever it comes to who's choosing what my new family is going to do, my mother's opinion should not bear as much as my wife's opinion. My dad's opinion should not bear as much as your husband's opinion does, woman. We are supposed to break in some ways some of those ties, leave the father and mother, leave the old family and be in the new family. And so one thing that we see here is that if you are in a relationship, husband, wife, whoever you are, if you are in a marriage today where your parents have more say and more influence than your spouse, then the Lord is calling you here to stop that and allow your spouse to have more influence in the relationship and the marriage and in your family than your parents do. We are to leave the father and mother. It's a very important word. There's another one, and it is that word for hold fast or cleave. You don't have to turn to the book of Ruth, but I want to read to you an excerpt from the book of Ruth that, that I think many of us have heard, and a lot of times we hear this read at weddings as well. In Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, we see this, this taking place just after Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, has lost her husband and all of her sons and all of the men in the family are gone. And Naomi says this to Ruth, and then we see Ruth's reply. It says in verse 11, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should, have, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And in verse 16 it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when we see this, whenever you see Ruth responding to this, this strong claim, this strong urging from Naomi, when you see Ruth talking here, and it says that Ruth 
clung to her. That word clung is the exact same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 2.24 for hold fast or cleave. And that's the type of relationship that we're supposed to have with our spouse. Whenever we make those, those vows in sickness and health, on the good days and the bad days, whenever you say all of those things, that's what it's talking about. We should have that sort of commitment to our spouse. We have left our old family, and at the same time, we have clung to our spouse in a way that says, I love you, and I will never leave you, and you will always be mine, and nothing but death is going to part me from you. That's what God calls us to do here. That is another teaching, brothers and sisters, that's not my opinion. It's not what I read in a book by some hotshot young marriage guru. It's from the Word of God. That's how we're called to be committed to and love our spouses. Point two. A husband and wife are to leave their old families behind and cling to one another unceasingly till death does them part. Husband and wife are to leave their old families behind, again, not cutting all ties, but in the sense that we're talking about they leave the old families behind, cling to one another unceasingly until death does them part. Now, in these verses that we've probably read many times because we've read the creation account, when, and every time you say, I'm going to read all the way through the Bible, you usually get to at least Genesis chapter 2 before you fall off the wagon, right? So we've read this text a lot of times. Brothers and sisters, there are so many implications in this text for us that I don't want you to miss today. The fact that marriage is to be between just one man and just one woman is seen here. The fact that a couple are supposed to separate from their old families, which sometimes is a very hard thing to do, but they're supposed to do that and create a new family unit is made very clear in this text. The, the fact that couples should only be physically intimate with one another after they are married is made very clear here. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's in chronological order. You leave your old family, you cling to your wife, and then you become one flesh. And that's talking partially about the physical intimacy here. It only takes place after marriage. Make note of that, especially for those of you that are not married, that are looking for marriage. Make note of that. That's not my opinion. That's the fact from the Word of God. The fact that and now I don't want you to miss this whenever we talk about leaving the old family, especially for those of you here that are not married. You cannot leave the old family and after marriage cling to your wife if you've already left the old family and already clinging to your wife. It also gives us some idea of when it is that we should be living together with the person that's going to become our spouse. Not before we're married, but when we're married, then we leave the old family, and then we cling, and then we become physically intimate with our spouse, not before. The fact that we should be fully committed to our spouse is seen here. Hold fast, cleave, cling to. Not some lackadaisical, well, I'll get married, and if it doesn't work out, then we'll just move on and try again. That's not what it says here. It says when we get married, that we should only be parted by death. 
that we should be fully committed in the good times and in the bad times. And why? Why is this so important? Why are all these things so important? Because this is the way that God intended for marriage to be. This is what's good for you, husband. This is what's good for you, wife. This isn't just God imposing his will and trying to run things. This is God telling you what is good for you. What will make your marriage healthy? What will make your marriage happy? These things will. But on top of all of that, this is what's good for the glory of God. Because we saw last week that marriage isn't just a picture of me loving somebody, but marriage is a picture of how Christ loves the church. When people look at marriage done God's way, not just marriage in general, but marriage done God's way, when people look at holy matrimony, when people look at a Christian following the Bible's teachings about marriage, what they see is a picture of how Christ loves us. And if we're messing up that picture, then we're messing up that witness to the world. For God's glory and for our good, it's very important that we do marriage God's way. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're here and you're married, is this what your marriage looks like? Are there things that you haven't done correctly? Are there things that you're not doing correctly even now? Because if so, the good news is there's still time for you to correct those things. We sang earlier, and one of the things that we sang, one of the lines that sticks out to me over and over in that song, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, it says, Oh, the triumphs of His grace. The triumphs of His grace overcome all of my sins. And all of the things that I've done wrong in marriage and outside of marriage, there is grace to be found in Jesus Christ to remove those things. For those of us that are Christians and we're not doing it the right way, He will help us to do it the right way and He will forgive us. He has already forgiven us, Christians, for the sins that we've committed against our spouse and against Him. If you're here this morning and your marriage is not one that's fully committed, you know that maybe on the outside you've made it look like it, but you know in your mind you have not been fully committed to your spouse. This is a call for you to give that up and to be fully committed, to cling to your spouse. If you're here today and you know that you haven't left your old family behind, this is a call for you to do that. If you're here today and, and you're living with somebody, you're being physically intimate with somebody that's not your spouse, this is a call for you to stop doing those things, to leave those things behind. This is an opportunity for us to say, I was doing it wrong, and now I want to do it right. There is grace from Jesus Christ to forgive you of that sin and to help you do it the right way. If you're here today and you're not married, is this the sort of relationship that you're looking for? Are these the things that you've been looking for? Have you understood Christ's call for what you should be looking for in a godly spouse? But I also want to ask you, brothers and sisters today, are you here and you realize that maybe in marriage you're doing it the right way, maybe you're not married and so you didn't think this applies to you. But going back to the other point, that God doesn't just say what's right in marriage, but God says what's right in everything. Have you realized this morning that in life in general, that you've been following mama and daddy, or you've been following your coworker, or you've been following your own advice and opinion too much and not letting God tell you what's the right way to do it? 
in the way that you interact with friends, in the way that you put things on the internet, in the way that you spend your free time, you realize that you haven't been doing it God's way. You've been doing it your way. And today you realize that the things that he's told you to do are for his glory, but they're also for your good. And you need to repent of some of those things. If so, we're going to have a time for you to be able to do that publicly today. We're going to stand. And as we have for the last few weeks, we have some paper and and pens and pencils down here on the front. Especially if you're here today and you're a husband or a wife. And in your marriage, there are some specific things that you know that you need to change. We ask you to come, and just as a symbol, there's no special spiritual significance to this, but as a symbol, we ask that you would come and write that thing down on one of these pieces of paper and place it in one of these baskets, symbolizing that you are leaving that thing behind and moving to something better. We'll come this week, and we'll pray over those. If you're here and you need to pray where you are, you can do that. If you'd like to come and pray at these altars, if you'd like to come and pray with me or ask me questions about His grace, about how to have your sins removed, about how to be made a Christian, about how to be made free. Come, do that. Let me explain to you the love of Christ for His bride, which is the church. This morning, we're not going to sing. We're going to do it a little bit differently. We're just going to have a time for you to pray where you are, to pray at these altars, or to come and let me speak to you and answer questions that you have. I'm just going to ask you, if you would, bow your heads and for just a few moments, pray and maybe listen and ask the Lord what He would have you to do.